Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 87, The Ice Officers. Today marks a special milestone in this mini-series as we get to the densest part, the Russian Civil War. I know I've already mentioned that the Civil War was destructive, but it's going to take me the next eight episodes to impress upon you how destructive it was. And this is very important to the historical journey we're on, as the Russia that the Bolsheviks rose to power in during the fall of 1917 would look very different just a few years later. The first nation to embrace the communist ethos would be ravaged and hollowed out, forcing the new state to take increasingly desperate decisions. The damage would be so severe that every previous plan the Bolsheviks might have had of using Russia as a vehicle for their global ambitions would have to be put on hold. And when the dust finally settled, they had to rebuild a ruin of a nation. The entire Soviet experience in the first couple decades was guided by events started during the Civil War. So let's get this train wreck going. While Lenin and the gang were busy up in Petrograd squaring away their political opponents and fitfully bringing Russia's World War I participation to a close, the first few months of 1918 saw the first moves of the embryonic White Army. White traditionally being the color of counter-revolution. This was the Volunteer Army, the uneasy collaboration between Generals Kornilov and Alexeev. Alongside them, kind of, sort of, were the Don Cossacks under Adaman Kalidin. They were about to embark on the first battles that, more so than World War I, would bring Russia to its knees. That being said, the war had very modest beginnings. At the start of 1918, the Volunteer Army amounted to only 5,000 men, all but maybe a dozen of them officers, which meant you had captains and majors and even colonels acting as foot soldiers, while higher officers led squads and platoons. Needless to say, this didn't sit well with some of the officers, who felt the size of their new commands beneath them. There was constant squabbling over who got to command what, in addition to political clashes between those who were in support of the provisional government and those who wanted to restore the Tsar. Weapons and provisions had to be scrounged up, although this was helped by the old army of the Caucasus disintegrating over the course of 1918, with hundreds of thousands of demoralized soldiers rushing northward and back to their homes. It was easy to stop some of the bands and take their weapons off them. As far as food, though, the volunteers would oftentimes make harsh requisitions from the surrounding countryside, something that didn't endear them to the populace, but that was going to be standard operating procedure for both sides all across the Civil War. In short, the situation was precarious as all hell for the early whites. They held only the Don Cossack capital of Novochikask and the city of Rostov just 20 miles to the southwest. The Red Forces held the railroads and were sending troops into the surrounding cities. Kornilov and Alexeev determined that remaining on the Don River would only invite a siege that they would lose, and both resolved to leave, although each wanted to go in different directions. Alexeev wanted to march south 100 miles towards Kateranodar, modern-day Krasnodar, in the foothills of the Northern Caucasus Mountains. If the city were taken, there was a chance the Kuban Cossack host might also go over to their cause. Kornilov wanted to march east to Astrakhan, much further distant, but also on the edge of Siberia, where Bolshevik sympathies were much weaker. Kalidin favored them staying with the Don Cossacks, probably because he was fearful that his own people didn't have enough fight in them to hold off the approaching Reds. After Red troops entered Taganrog, less than 35 miles from Rostov, Kalidin called a conference in Novochikask on February the 8th. 
He didn't want to abandon his capital, but Kornilov and the Whites didn't want to risk everything fighting a far larger Red Force. They resolved to march south, and Kalidin, despairing over his and the Whites' chances of success, shot himself on the 11th. The mood wasn't helped when a complete regiment of Cossack troopers returned home on the 17th. Their initial arrival was met with glee, as these were seemingly battle-hardened troopers begging to pit themselves against the Bolsheviks. They were sent into the fray west of Novocherkask on the 19th, but by the 21st, they had been won over by Bolshevik propaganda and deserted. Desertion was going to be something that happened a lot on both sides as well. This kind of thing pretty much proved they couldn't stick around. On the 21st of February, Kornilov began his march southwards, as Alexeev's plan of linking up with the Kuban Cossacks had won out. The new Don Cossack Adaman, Nazarov, believed that the Bolsheviks would leave the Cossacks to their own devices and stayed behind. This was terribly naive as the Reds entered Novocherkask on the 25th and executed him. The trek of the volunteer army would become known as the Ice March, on account of the army marching on foot across the barren steppe at the end of February. Just imagine, 3,500 soldiers with an uncertain future in sub-zero temperatures marching across icy ground, frozen rivers, snowdrifts, surrounded by a population sympathetic to their enemies, all to reach a city held by red troops that they would then have to take. Also, falling right in their tracks were the civilians. Rostov had become a meeting place for the dislocated bourgeois, and those well-to-do folks opted to march along with the army instead of waiting for the Reds to catch up with them in Rostov, which decidedly slowed the army down and added to its burdens, as these types were not exactly outdoorsmen. Speaking of those burdens, to survive off the frozen land, the army was forced to live off the peasants that they passed by, which also meant they had to travel as a group at all times. Smaller detachments that fell behind or got separated were almost guaranteed to be detained and probably executed by the local communities. Not that the Whites had felt any regard for these people in the first place. Keep in mind, this army might have been small in numbers, but they were the ones who felt so dispossessed and threatened by the revolution that they were willing to join an obviously tiny operation like the Volunteers in order to just try and get a little bit of revenge. If the village they passed through was known to have Red sympathies, you can be sure it was going to be put to the sword. Case in point was the village of Lejanka, where the whites slaughtered 60 peasants and lashed hundreds more after stripping them of their clothes out in the cold. So yeah, it was going to be one of those civil wars. It took weeks of marching, but eventually the volunteer army reached Ekaterinodar on April 10th. Kornilov had initially wanted to delay the attack, but back on the 23rd of March, a force of 3,000 Kuban Cossacks actually did link up with the Whites. This force had been displaced when Red forces had earlier taken the city and proclaimed a North Caucasian Soviet Republic. The combined group was pitted against 18,000 Red soldiers. The numbers were against them from the start, and it only got worse after the 12th of April when the Kuban Cossacks fell apart while under fire. But Kornilov was not built to retreat, and probably feared the entire army would dissolve if he gave that order. He decided to stick it out, not knowing he wasn't going to have to do that for long. On the 13th, an artillery shell hit the farmhouse where he had established his headquarters, killing him. His death was pretty needless, as the area had been shelled for days already, and the Reds knew he was there. He just refused to move, which was kind of his whole personality, so you can add this to the list of, he died as he lived. Command of the army fell to General Anton Denikin, 
a follower of Kornilov's, but he lacked his boss's fight-to-the-finish spirit and ordered a retreat. This normally would have been the end of such a group. They were still heavily outnumbered and in hostile territory, and had expended a lot of their ammo in the past month and a half. But the struggle had actually brought the troops together, and they emerged from the fight more cohesive than before. It also didn't hurt their losses were made good by recruiting from the local population, and also through defectors from the Red Side. Denikin ordered the army north towards the Don. They were going right back to where they had started to regroup and think of a better plan. This wasn't as insane as it might sound on paper. The Red troops in the Caucasus had been exhausted by the fighting and lacked supplies of their own, being mostly cut off from the northern Red strongholds. In addition, the Don Soviet Republic that had occupied Novochikask and Rostov in the meantime had terrorized and looted the Cossack communities around the Don River, the effect of which was superior to any propaganda and galvanized the previously half-hearted Cossacks into action. By the end of April, 10,000 cavalrymen were in the field, and Novochikask was retaken. The Don Cossacks in early May elected General Krasnov as their new adamant. Small reminder from episodes previous, Krasnov had been in charge of the Cossack troops that Kerensky had enlisted to retake Petrograd in the aftermath of the October Revolution. At that time, also, the Reds were in trouble because many of their bases were in eastern Ukraine, which had since been taken by detachments of German troops in the aftermath of the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. The Germans continued their advance as far as Rostov, taking the city from the Reds on May 8th. They got in contact with the Don Cossacks, and sensing a partnership opportunity, started providing them guns in exchange for much-needed grain. By the middle of June 1918, Krasnov would have 40,000 men in his Don army. In addition, the Germans sent aid to a small force of about 7,000 men on the lower Volga around Astrakhan. It was mostly a partisan force, but it would harry Bolshevik attempts to organize south of the city of Tsaritsyn, modern-day Volgograd, and also known by another name that we will all become well acquainted with. The volunteer army was itself bolstered by a force of 2,000 men marching east from the old Romanian front clear across Ukraine to link up with Alexeev and Denikin. With the Don Cossacks having secured the southern reaches of their namesake river and their western flank secured by quasi-friendly German forces, the Whites now had to determine what to do come early June. Either way they went, the weather was at least going to be nicer. Once again, it came down to marching south or northeast. This time in the northeast, there was the added wrinkle of the Czech Legion. I'll talk about them in more detail in a few minutes, but just remember from the Siberian Expedition episodes that they were a powerful faction of foreign troops who fell out with the Bolsheviks and took over practically the whole Trans-Siberian Railway. Their appearance was a huge opportunity for the Whites in European Russia, just as much as it was for the Whites stuck out in Manchuria. If the Volunteer Army could march northeast and take Tsaritsyn, then they could reach the Czechs, Siberian Cossacks, and Eastern Whites and combine forces. United with the Volunteers and Don Cossacks, it would be enough to overwhelm the fresh Red Army and take Moscow. Alexeev and Krasnov were all for the plan and saw victory in sight. The problem, though, was General Denikin. He had some personal issues with Krasnov and the two didn't get along together, usually exhibited by bickering over precious supplies. Their disagreements made Denikin want to get away from Krasnov and move south, back into the Kuban and Caucasus regions. Alexeev appealed to Denikin's good sense, pointing out that the Kuban did not have the wealth to support an army that could liberate the nation. But Denikin didn't care and wanted to secure his own power base before launching a national campaign. In the short term, 
Dunican was successful in his efforts. The volunteer army had been expanded thanks to conscription and Cossacks from the Kuban joining up with him. He set out in June 1918 southwards, and by August 18th had done what Kornilov had failed to do and taken Ekaterinodar. By November, his troops had also taken Stavropol 140 miles to the east. The Red troops in the area, isolated, hungry, and demoralized, fled into the mountains. Danikin now had his base of operations, an area the size of Belgium and an army of some 40,000 men. With a power base secured, a new constitution of the volunteer army was drawn up that gave him the powers of a dictator that I'm sure Kornilov would have approved of. The constitution itself was a hodgepodge of ideas promising political freedom while giving Denikin, mockingly referred to sometimes as Tsar Anton, unlimited power. Everyone would be theoretically equal, aside from a handy list of exceptions who had special privileges. It didn't lay out a vision of the future or what Russia was supposed to look like, and is a good example of the whites only offering that they were anti-Bolshevik and not really a whole lot else. And if Denikin intended to rule through a cult of personality like, say, Kerensky intended, he wasn't the best for the job on that front either. He was a military man, and only a military man. And worse, unlike Kornilov, he was unable to translate himself into a living symbol that his supporters could project their desires onto. The experience of 1917 had left him with an aversion to politics, which was bad because the Russian Civil War was a very political one, and his inability to identify the grievances of the people, instead opting to focus purely on military affairs, meant that even in his days of success, his position wasn't really built on anything solid. If the war had been a short one, if he had cooperated with Krasnov and made an alliance with the Czechs and then linked up with the Eastern Whites, that might not have mattered. The war wouldn't have lasted long enough. But he opted to go it alone and practically guaranteed a longer war. A longer war meant having to create an ideology. It meant establishing links with communities and giving them something to fight for. He never really did that, aside from, again, just being anti-Bolshevik. As long as he had a successful army in the field, things looked outwardly fine. Once the army started attritioning and then lost battles, it all went to hell. A Western white government would duly establish itself along with Denikin and Ekaterinodar, but these sad political castoffs didn't do anything to make the backwater local capital an appealing alternative to the Bolsheviks. Remnants of the Black 100s and cadets vied with each other over government posts that didn't actually govern anything. They spent their days rubber-stamping decisions made by the white generals, while Denikin kept them at arm's length. It was telling that many of the leading political leaders that had escaped the Bolsheviks declined to work in such a useless environment. A more immediate political issue that threatened Denikin now that he was established in southern Russia was the Kuban Cossacks. Keep in mind, the Cossack hosts were separate entities with their own leaders. Even though the Don and Kuban hosts were basically adjacent to each other, they were separate bodies and the Kuban guys looked pretty enviously at what Krasnov had accomplished in securing autonomy and wanted that for themselves. What both of them really wanted was complete freedom and self-rule. The whites, though, obviously couldn't tolerate that, and while they couldn't rein in the Dawn Cossacks, they were in a much stronger position in the Kuban. The whites requisitioned supplies and food as if they were an occupying force, and the Kuban host started thinking of them in that way as well. Now, it didn't come to a direct fight, but the Cossacks did start doing everything they could to make the lives of all the non-Cossack inhabitants of the Kuban a living hell. 
They closed the borders of the host to new Russian immigrants. Not that they were probably all that many during those days, but it is the thought that counts. They expelled thousands of farmers already living there. They shut down non-Cossack schools. And for the especially unpopular non-Cossacks, they simply accused them of being Bolsheviks and murdered them. If you think of the Cossacks as just neat, local throwback communities to a simpler time of living in the saddle, well, they debated the more modern concept of simply expelling the non-Cossacks on ethnic lines, asserting that they held a natural superiority. The Whites tried to push back against all this, but they were kind of busy fighting a war in the region and only wound up provoking the Cossacks still more. A more diplomatic approach early on could probably have resolved a lot of issues, like, say, maybe reaching a clearly defined partnership from the start. But General Denikin wasn't that kind of guy, and just assumed the Cossacks would follow orders, just as they had under the Tsar. Elsewhere during the summer of 1918, other Bolshevik factions were taking shape. I talked about the Czech Legion quite a bit during the Japanese-Siberian intervention episodes, so you might already be familiar with them. If not, long story short is that the Austro-Hungarian army in World War I had a whole bunch of nationalities in its ranks, many of which desired independence from that empire. After capturing enough of them on the Eastern Front, the Russians helped Czech soldiers form units that would fight on the side of the Entente. Thing is, though, the October Revolution hit before that plan could really be put into action, but after some 40 to 50,000 odd soldiers had already been equipped and organized. They were already trained soldiers coming from the Austrian army and constituted a powerful force that was not sympathetic to the Reds. The Bolsheviks knew this and were very interested in getting them back home and out of the country as soon as possible. Thing was, getting them out of Russia was going to be tough, as the Central Powers barred the northern and southern routes. So, it was decided to send them out across the Trans-Siberian Railroad. First, the Czechs had to be shifted from the western front lines and through the European part of Russia. On March 25, 1918, they made it as far as the city of Penza, which was 400 miles east of Moscow and deep in Bolshevik territory. There, they secured an agreement of safe passage with the Bolsheviks to head east, and over the next two months, detachments started being shuttled across the Trans-Siberian. Thing is, though, the train network could only carry so many troops so fast, and before long, the Czechs were strung out all across the Trans-Siberian. The situation was very, very tense on both sides, as the local Soviet governments in the cities along the way didn't want armed foreign troops passing through. Moreover, red agitators along the way tried to indoctrinate the Czech soldiers and get them to abandon their unit, which after all was going to fight for the Entente and ergo the capitalists. This set the Czechs on edge, and many worried that the Bolsheviks would ship them in the wrong direction and hand them over to the Germans. Which, hey, fair, the send the trains in the wrong direction was a trick that the Bolshevik railway workers had pulled in the past. Part of the agreement had been for the Czechs to disarm on their trip, but they decided not to do that. An armed dispute broke out in Chelyabinsk on May 14th and resulted in the Legion troops taking over the whole city. This resulted in Trotsky ordering the whole legion be interned, to which they responded by taking over the Trans-Siberian. There were six major groups split up along the way, and they fanned out, taking cities. West of the Urals, Penza and Sizran were taken on the 28th and 29th of May. East of the Urals, Tomsk was taken on the 31st, Omsk on the June 6th, and Vladivostok on the 29th of June. Keep in mind that during the summer of 1918, the Red Army was still in the process of being formed, and while I've mentioned Red soldiers fighting during these days, 
they were almost entirely Red Guard formations and lacked basic training, and in the case of the Trans-Siberian takeovers, they were also heavily outnumbered. A very serious situation for the Bolsheviks developed on June 8th in Samara, a major city on the Volga River close to Sizran. The Czechs were advancing on that city as well, but in this case, the local SR leaders approached them with an offer of cooperating against the Bolsheviks. Now, this was kind of a dicey prospect for both sides. The SRs would be cooperating with a foreign entity against their own people, while the Czechs would be explicitly siding with one Russian faction over another, neither of which would look good. However, the right SRs were kind of running out of options. They had returned to the provincial capitals, like Samara, hoping to rally the peasants, but didn't find any support. And while they had pledged not to support foreigners on Russian soil, they were really mad about the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. Keep in mind that disputes over it nearly wrecked the Bolshevik Central Committee and came close to bringing Lenin himself down. It was absolutely reviled across the nation. And in fact, part of why Denikin's army down south expanded by so much was because of patriotic Russians absolutely refusing to abide by the treaty and wanting to cancel that just as much as restoring the old order. So yeah, people were suddenly motivated to fight the Bolsheviks. The Czechs had it a bit easier in making their decision, as they were already fighting the Reds, and reconciliation didn't seem like a very likely prospect there. Uh, so might as well make some new friends. Samara was taken with only a handful of deaths, and the SRs proclaimed the Committee of Members of the Constituent Assembly. Yes, they're referring to that same group Lenin had almost effortlessly dissolved last episode. This entity is more well-known as the Kamuch, and committed itself to... Well, it committed itself to making the same mistakes as every attempt at liberal government had made so far in Russia. This was June 1918. The countryside of Russia was in the throes of full revolution, and I ain't talking about the early stages either. It had been going on since November, and honestly, in a lot of areas, even before that. The peasants had taken the land that they wanted. They had looted and burned the manors, and driven the gentry into exile, or if they can get their hands on them, murdered them. It had been done or was in the process of being done. It wasn't organized by anyone, not the Bolsheviks, certainly not the SRs who presumed to speak for the peasantry. It was something that the peasant communes had wanted for a very long time, and there wasn't an army available that could really stop them. The Bolsheviks did the expedient thing and endorsed their actions, patting them on the head and telling them that they were doing a good thing. The Kamuch and the SRs, though, they decided to try and put the genie back in the bottle. The Kamuch mostly consisted of the right SRs, but some cadets and Mensheviks joined up too. And this overall group decided to do just as they had previously and act as though it was too early for revolution in Russia. They had to establish a bourgeois government to liberalize the country and create conditions for later socialism. And again, they were saying this in June 1918. After all that had happened, they still felt this was the way to go. That meant Dumas, that meant personal freedoms and respect of private property. They gave the factories back to the owners, the banks back to the bankers, and even tried to roll back the land seizures. Given that the whole SR platform was giving land to the peasants, this did a lot to poison the well. On July 22nd, they allowed the gentry to reclaim as much as a third of their land, backed by the guns of Czech soldiers. In some cases, the local gentry had peasants whipped to punish them for their impudence. The Samara proletariat didn't turn it into a suicidal armed fight against the Czechs protecting the Kamuch, but they did keep their Soviet, and they went hard Bolshevik in their proclamations. To say the least, the government was not terribly popular. 
Even the supportive well-to-do of the city shifted their support when it looked like a more stable government was taking shape further east. Two months in, the Kamuch held city elections in August. Two-thirds of the population didn't vote, and the parties that eventually formed the government got a grand total of 15% of those who did bother to come out. This wasn't the last nail in the coffin of Russian liberalism. It was the last patch of dirt being tossed onto the grave. Still, the Kamuch lingered on and even lurched towards establishing a standing army of its own, which was the style at the time. And for a brief window, they actually scored a number of successes against the Reds. Resolving not to wait around for the Bolsheviks to show up and attack them, the Kamuchin Czechs went on a tear through European Russia, and towns as far afield as Kazan and Ufa fell to the government by early August. 14 million Russians came under its jurisdiction, and there started to be worker revolts against the Bolsheviks north of Kazan once it looked like that government might be weakening. A big reason why the Bolsheviks were caught off guard on their eastern flank was because the bulk of the New Red Army was being sent west to guard against expected German enroachments. Also, there had been a major mutiny among the Red Army in the east by their left SR commander that had extended across the Volga region south of Samara, which, hey, more on that next episode. Also, remember, the Red Army had been disbanded, and the Bolsheviks were still building the Red One from the ground up. It was still a very new force here. Plus, the Czechs were excellent soldiers that couldn't yet be competed with. Things were suddenly looking decidedly grim for the Bolsheviks. Siberia was cut off, the Volga was either contested or lost, the South was in white hands, or cut off, and the German garrisons still held out in the West. But all was not lost, far from it. The Czechs may have been willing to fight for a time, but they weren't going to be conquering Russia. In fact, by late summer 1918, they had grown largely fed up with the open-ended struggle and were starting to give up the fight. The units in the West supporting the Kamuch started dissolving, with some heading east towards home, others turning to banditry or even going over to the Bolsheviks. The Whites were still sorting themselves out in Siberia. Denikin was putzing around north of the Caucasus, losing friends and time. Krasnov and the Don Cossacks were trying to storm Tsaritsyn, which I'll also cover next episode, but the city was stubborn and the Cossacks, well, they weren't so stubborn. And just as all seemed lost, the Red Army finally started coming online under Trotsky's leadership. While it wouldn't be a crack force, it was at least some kind of force, and they'll be starting to counter their enemies just as they exhausted themselves. So that means next week we get into the Red side of the story and how they didn't manage to lose the Civil War. So join me then. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.